0: Imagine the codebase of Uber. Uber has a gigantic codebase, and it cannot be searched with naive indexing algorithms. In order to search through a codebase the size of Ubers, it's necessary to build a much more sophisticated indexing system than a simple, pure-text search. Sourcegraph is a system for universal code search. It allows developers to more easily onboard to a new codebase, make large refactors, and perform other tasks. Sourcegraph can integrate with source control systems and IDEs and other tools to fit comfortably into an engineer's workflow. Biang Lu is a co-founder of Sourcegraph, and he joins the show to talk about how codebases can become large and unwieldy, and the tooling that Sourcegraph offers to make these codebases easier to work with. If you are building a company in the developer tooling space or something related to infrastructure, send me an email, jeff at softwareengineeringdaily.com. I'm looking for companies to invest in. And I'm also always looking for interesting stories for companies and interesting open source projects. Send me an email to jeff at Daily.com. Beyond, welcome to the show. Hey, Jeff. Thanks for having me on. I want to talk to you today about Sourcegraph, which is a company that you co-founded, and it's around code search and intelligence code search and intelligence what does that mean
1: so it's basically a combination of two different things code search i think is is self-explanatory but it's it's basically the idea of you know you have this universe of code that you work in maybe that's the corpus of code that's inside your company maybe it could be as big as you know all of you know what's on github.com or gitlab.com Regardless, the, it's it's unlikely that all the code that you care about using is on your local machine, and so in order to find the bits and pieces of code that are relevant to you at any given point in time, maybe it's you know you're looking into a, a bug report, maybe it's you're evaluating a, a new library you might want to use. You have to go and discover that piece of code, and so what Code Search is all about is you know making it so that you can type a query into a query box and instantly find. The snippets or pieces of code that uh, you're trying to get to, and then once you click into one of those results, that's where code intelligence and code navigation come into play. Then it's about you know you're reading through a code file and you're trying to build a mental model of what's going on in that code, and sort of the basic primitives of doing that are often you know go to definition, find references, you know hovering over certain symbols uh, to get their documentation. And so code intelligence starts with that set of functionality. So, providing those kind of basic navigational primitives so you can build that mental model quickly. And then it also kind of bleeds into uh, more than just that. So think of all the additional context, contextual information that might be relevant to you while you're reading a piece of code. So it can be things like data that's pulled in that tells you the code coverage, the test coverage uh, of a particular file. It could be annotations that link you to production uh, incidents or outages that can be traced to a particular line in source. Uh, And so it really covers a lot of things. But the basic idea is that, you know, all the information that might be useful to help you understand and build that mental model of a piece of code, that's, that's what code intelligence is. And that's what kind of source graph is all about. Search and discovery and then understanding. Isn't this all accomplished by the IDE? That is a great question. And that's a question that we've got gotten a lot, especially in the early years of, of the company. So the way I like to tackle that is, first of all, I think IDEs are great. They're extremely powerful tools with a lot of you know intelligence built into them. I think the trouble with IDEs arises when the set of code that you care about that you might want to search and discover expands beyond just uh, your current repository or what you have checked out locally on your machine. So, you know, commonly inside large companies, you have these giant code bases where, you know, no one is going to check out the entire code base onto their local machine. That would be untenable. But also even more so, you know, outside those larger companies, uh, more and more people are relying on the universe of open source code. So the the likelihood that you're going to want to find some piece of code that might be relevant to you that actually exists outside your ID is kind of growing over time. The other kind of aspect of this is uh, context switching. So, you know, developers, I think focus matters a lot to us in terms of our day- to- day workflow. And at least if you're like me, you know, I use my ID pr- primarily for writing code. and when i'm when I'm in the mode of writing code, I don't like to, Get distracted. And the worst thing is when I'm you know writing code and all of a sudden, I'm like, hmm, you know, is there a library function that I could call to do this one particular thing? Or let's say you know I get interrupted by some incident that happens in production. There's like an error message I have to go investigate. The worst thing is like kind of blowing away my existing IDE state. like this I was in the middle of writing something, and now I have to like open up a new you know tab in the IDE and you know go down this rabbit hole of figuring out you know what this other part of the code base does. And then after I'm done with that, I'm I, I kind of like completely lost. Like, where was I? I have to go retrace my steps and kind of rebuild that working state. And so having a code understanding tool that's kind of a separate application that's distinct from your editor, your IDE, is a way to kind of compartmentalize the part of the job that is like building a mental model of, of a piece of code that doesn't happen to be what you're, you have open your IDE right now. Sorry, so is
0: there an integration point? with the ide or is this just a way to search code that is external to the ide
1: so there is an integration point with the ide we do have uh, integrations that let you kind of seamlessly jump from what you're viewing in your ide to source graph and vice versa and that's because oftentimes you'll be exploring something in your ide and it's going to lead to this rabbit hole and you want to open up in source graph so you can start exploring that code and oftentimes, you know, the, the opposite happens. When you when one of our users, you know, is diving into a piece of code uh, in source graph, they're not sure whether it's something they want to edit, but, you know, they find the piece of code they're looking for, they build confidence in kind of the relevance to what they're doing right now, and then they want to open that file directly in the IDE. So that's that's kind of how we integrate with editors. We, we do have integrations with other developer tools as well, namely code hosts and, and code review tools. I guess that, that, that also gets to... Another aspect of, you know, this beyond the ID attitude, which is a lot of times when you're reading through code, it it doesn't happen to be in your editor. It it happens to be in like a code review process. And in that case, like by definition, it's kind of new and unfamiliar code, code that you want to build a mental model of so you can evaluate on the basis of, you know, quality and not having those basic navigational primitives, you know, go to def, find references can be a huge handicap in in those situations.
0: So what is the workflow for somebody who is using source graph can you de- describe that in in more detail how am i integrating with points outside of my own code base that i have loaded into my ide
1: yeah so there's kind of a variety of different kind of workflows i would guess it's because it's it's essentially like oh, so source graph is is really two um maybe three things Right now, there's a there's a search bar, there's a there's a code explorer. Those are in your web browser, and then there's an integration, a Chrome extension that integrates into your code host. And so that that would be kind of like a a, a thing that enhances the code review experience. So when when we talk about workflows, it, it really depends on which which one of those three things that you kind of interact with first. So I, maybe I'll just you know go through a couple of like individual workflows just to give you know not a representative sample, but maybe just like a sampling of of uh, how people use the product so you know one use case is you are on call and let's say there's a a production outage and you you go in and, and find that there's a stack trace in the logs and that stack trace points to a particular error message so there's a distinct error message that you're trying to track down in source code and so one use case there with Sourcegraph is you copy that error message, you paste it into the Sourcegraph search bar, and you don't know where this error message might be coming from, right? Because it, it could be, uh, especially if you're in kind of a multi-repository type environment or multi-service type environment, it could be coming from one of, you know, many services. You, you're not sure where. It could be coming from like an open source dependency that you're you're pulling in. So it's likely not gonna be in the code that's on your local machine. And so that's why you would go to source graph, you drop that error message into the search bar and then it would show you a list of all the places where that error message or that error message pattern appears in the source. And so then you would click into those results, pinpoint the place that you care about, build a mental model of how that surrounding logic and code works. And then when you're ready to fix the bug, you would use the IDE integration to say like, okay, this file that I have opened in source graph, let's open that up directly in my editor and let's go and kind of edit the code and, and push up the patch. Does that make sense? It does make sense. And we could talk a little bit about the...
0: The golden ideal here, I think. like the code navigation tools in Google and Facebook are probably far beyond what almost anybody else has access to. There's just such a level of integration with the code and their workflows that uh, it's it, you know even the you know hot startup with 200 people is not going to to hold a candle to. I'm sure you've seen those code navigation workflows. How do those compare to what somebody can get with Sourcegraph plus a modern IDE?
1: Yeah, totally. So you know, you mentioned uh, Google and Facebook, and those are uh, two companies that have built kind of Sourcegraph-like things uh, internally for their own developers. And I actually have kind of a, a firsthand experience with uh, Google's tool because I, I uh, worked there. But it was only an internship, but you know I got to kind of experience all the fantastic developer tools that Google has built internally and just to share some color uh, around what that looks like for you know people who might not have have worked inside of Google previously so Google has this internal tool called code search there is a Google code search that's public but it's it's a completely different application the internal one is a lot more powerful but also a lot more specific to Google's internal monorepo and what I always like to tell people is that this is probably the most popular developer tool inside Google, other than someone's primary editor. So when I was at Google, a lot of people had kind of the standard two monitor setup as a developer. You know, your, your first monitor is you know almost always open to your editor, and then the second monitor uh, happens to be kind of like a reference tool or a reference monitor. And uh, at least on the team that I was, that second monitor was open to a code search tab, probably. 80 to 90% of the day, because people would just use it as their go-to tool for diving into an unfamiliar part of Google's code. And the reason they did that was because, you know, first of all, you have a giant code base. You're not going to have it checked out locally on your machine. Second of all, you, you don't want to blow away the working state in your editor. It was so powerful because you really, you really felt that you had... All the code in Google felt accessible to you. You know, it wasn't just available. It was was actually accessible. You could, you know, dive into it and and quickly build a familiarity with it. And uh, it had a lot of the same features that, you know, Sourcegraph now offers, kind of trigram-based regular expression search, go to definition, find references, things like that. But it also had some certain things that were limiting that uh, Sourcegraph kind of works past. And there's also uh, you know a certain set of features that Sourcegraph now has that uh, uh, Google Code Search uh, never had. So to start with, you know, Sourcegraph supports I think you know basically every major programming language now, whereas the the Google internal tool was at, at that time I think there were three major languages. I think that's now ground to four or five uh, inside Google. But at that time it only supported the languages that Google kind of had officially endorsed. So Google Google's tool was actually quite kind of specific to the way that Google's monorepo functioned as well. So Google had a very particular way of building its code base and even invented a tool to to build that code base specifically and code search tool was kind of tethered tightly to, to that way of, of building their code. Whereas Sourcegraph, you know, we attempt to basically provide code search and code navigation for every repository out there. Now, obviously, you know, there's a long tail of things that often are difficult to support, but we do our best to, to try to uh, capture the most common cases you, you see in the wild. And then kind of moving beyond the feature set of, of what Google do, there, there's been a variety of like additional features that we found are amazingly useful to our customers and our users, things like save searches. So save searches is a feature in Sourcegraph where you can basically create a search query that searches for like a particular pattern or anti-pattern that you want to keep track of. And it will notify you anytime a new instance of that pattern pops up in the code base. There's also the extension API, uh, which allows third-party plugin makers to build essentially like the analog of IDE plugins, but for source graphs. So integrating third-party sources of information, um, the kind of error monitoring data or the code coverage data that I referenced earlier, that's all provided by uh, kind of third-party plugins. And then lastly, it's it's kind of the integration with your, your code review tool, which is amazing because it kind of takes the code intelligence outside of your IDE and brings it to essentially every place that you you might want to like read through and understand code.
0: So the what you mentioned around the programming language support. So you gave the example that inside Google there is this blessed set of languages. I think it's C, Python, Java, Go, maybe, yeah. or, or what they have today. Yep. So they only need to have parsing and indexing tools around that set of languages if you have a much wider set of languages what what do you need to build around the parsing and indexing of these different programming languages
1: yeah totally it is a challenging problem when you're trying to support you know things like go to definition find references across every major programming language and also a build system that kind of there's almost like a combinatorial complexity that arises and so the way we've approached that, this is kind of an approach that we've evolved over the years through witnessing, you know, what issues that our users and customers encounter trying to get code intelligence set up is we we have multiple layers of kind of the, the code intelligence backend. And these layers have different levels of precision or accuracy. So there's kind of a basic layer, what we call basic code intelligence, that. Uh, I think the way to think about it is it's kind of like Ctags plus plus. So if you're familiar with uh, Ctags, it's this um, tool that's typically integrated into editor plugins that provides uh, basic go to definition and find references functionality uh, across many different languages. But it doesn't do that at a compiler level. It It actually operates on kind of the—I don't know if they use regular expressions, but it's—it's a a pattern matching uh, syntax that's similar in power to regular expressions, or or maybe a little bit beyond that. It is, at the end of the day, kind of textual matching that doesn't fully understand the semantics of the language. And it turns out that for you know 80, 90 percent use cases, this works quite well, actually. So you know when. I was uh, at Google uh, incidentally, uh, I was coding it mainly in C++ and uh, everyone on my team was using uh, Emacs and uh, everyone had C tags set up. And this it turned out for you know C++ for the code that we were working on, this was kind of enough to get by for a jump to definition in the editor. But obviously that that's often, it works eighty percent of the time, ninety uh, percent of the time, but there's still the ten to twenty percent of the time where it doesn't work, and and those situations are situations where you have a function that's like name something like list or get uh, or something really generic, and and in those cases, you know, a purely textual-based tool because it doesn't understand the type system and structure of the language can't disambiguate between kind of semantically different functions or symbols that happen to have the same uh, textual name. And for things like that, we have to build kind of fancier support. And, and we call that next layer uh, precise code intelligence. And so this is when you get into more of a compiler level understanding of the code, uh, in some cases beyond the compiler, because for dynamic dynamically typed languages like Python and JavaScript, you might actually have to do some amount of type inference uh, you know, beyond what the compiler and the interpreter is going to do. Because... You have to kind of statically infer what the type of something is in order to be able to jump the user to the the correct definition. This is a whole can of worms. I mean, there's a lot of different approaches that we use beneath the hood to to deal with this. And it it gets even more complicated when you think beyond compilers to build systems. So there's basically a standard compiler now in, in every major language, which it is really nice from a code analysis point of view, because a standard compiler, like a single standard compiler, also means there's kind of a, a, one, a one tool that will correctly build 99% of the code in a particular language. And you can hook into that tool to extract the information you need to uh, provide code intelligence. The issue of build systems, though, introduces a complication into this, because many language ecosystems have more than one standard build system. Right. So, you know, like in the Java world, which I, I used to work in quite a bit, you got people using Gradle, you got people using Maven, there's still people using Ant, there's people using Bazel now, it's just like a, a whole kind of buffet of options. And within each of those options, there's a lot of different configuration points, you know, with, within, you know, a single build.gradle uh, script, there's a lot of things that you can do. And hooking into that, if if you think about the information we need to extract from a code base in order to provide code intelligence, it essentially reduces to the like symbol table that a compiler constructs internally when it's doing compilation of the code, because from that symbol table we can then go and, well, I, I guess a symbol table plus like the the type the type annotated AST. From those two data structures, we can then go and extract the information we need to support any kind of jump to def or, or find references. But in order to get to those data structures, you have to properly build the code, and that means uh, properly integrating into the build system to you know actually build the code so that we can extract that data. And so far, you know, the the best approach that we found and the approach that we're kind of increasingly adopting is this protocol format, serialization format called LSIF, L-S-I-F. And that stands for the Language Server Index Format. It's kind of the sister sister protocol to the Language Server Protocol, which I can get into if if that's of interest. But basically, the idea is it's a standard language agnostic protocol that what you do is you write a tool that hooks into the build system, and then spits out uh, data in this ELSA format. And that is going to include things like all the definitions and references that are contained in the code. So, you know, structural data about the code. Uh, you upload that to Sourcegraph, and then we have a backend that interprets that data. And when a user hovers over uh, you know, a particular reference or definition, we use the data that we have stored and indexed to respond to that request.
0: So what you're describing, where you basically have to interlope into the the build process, so that's because if you have something like TypeScript, the TypeScript is uh, you know has to be compiled down to to JavaScript first, or because you need, or you give an example of Java where you might have a build tool yeah. that would need to be interjected, or the, like a build tool for I don't know building. Like, I think in spring, there's probably some, some kinds of situations where you're going to be making some, some meta classes. Am I understanding that correctly?
1: Yeah, yeah you, you got it. So it, it's stuff like, at the end of the day, what we need to do is we need to extract information from the type annotated AST and, and the symbol table. And so the question is, how do, you, how do you get those data structures? In order to get those data structures, you kind of have to, well, you, you have to compile the code, right? Uh, and if there is kind of a missing dependency or there is a you know code file where you pass the wrong compiler flag and so it doesn't find the code file where it expects to be you're going to get a compilation error and you know some co- some compilers are more fault tolerant than others but the vast majority of compilers i would say are kind of designed with this like all or nothing approach in mind which is you know if if there's a file missing, it's just not going to generate a binary, right? Because it's not going to generate like a half working program. And so if, if the compiler breaks, then, you know, there's kind of two approaches. One is you can kind of rewrite your own compiler, uh, which some people have done, you know, like the, the Eclipse presentation compiler in the Java world essentially does this. It's like a, a fault tolerant compiler whose goal is not to generate an executable, but to, to, to just like, you know, do enough to, to get you know, the, the, the symbol table in AST so they can respond to these uh, code intelligence uh, requests. But you know, writing your own compiler is, is a bit of an undertaking. So the, the other approach is you run the build script in a way that doesn't you know, avoids any kind of like Turing complete computations that the build might need to run, but in a way that passes enough information to the com- compiler that it can su- su- successfully generate these data structures to give you the information that you need to, to complete code intelligence actions
0: understood. Can we talk more about the integration point? So how Sourcegraph gets integrated and what kinds of work needs to be done in order to set up that integration?
1: Yeah, totally. So there, there the term integration is a bit overloaded. And arguably, we could do a better job of disambiguating between the, the types of integration. So we have a few types of integration. So there's the the integrations with the editors that you kind of touched upon earlier, those, those are actually pretty pretty basic, so maybe we'll skip those. There's the integration with code hosts, which is like, how do you set up the connection between source graph and whatever is hosting the code that you'd like to index? So, you know, github.com or GitLab or Bitbucket, for instance those are code host integrations and we we integrate with basically every major git based code hosting solution and we also have kind of a way to support non git based uh, uh, code repositories as well so that that's one set of integrations then there's the integrations with code review tools which is hooking into that kind of it hooks into the UI of code review and code host tools. So, this is different from the indexing integration, which is just about kind of ingesting data into Source Graph. This is now like, okay, let's go and modify the UI of GitHub PRs or GitLab MRs to kind of inject kind of Source Graph magic in there. You know, go to definition, find references, and other code understanding uh, functionality. And then there's a third set of integrations, which we call extensions, which are integrations with third-party developer tools, ranging from code coverage tools like CodeCov to things like error monitoring reporting tools like uh, Sentry and things like that, that take data from the APIs of those other services or those tools, and then annotate the source code in source graph with with that data so it'd be like you know line based test coverage highlighting uh, that'd be an example of, of a, a thing that you could do with that with, with extensions uh, source graph extensions and the cool thing about source graph extensions is that it actually hooks into the integrations with CodeHost ui so if you write a like uh, testing coverage extension for Sourcegraph that gives these line by line test coverage highlights and a user also has the codehost ui integration installed they will be able to get these code coverage annotations in a github pr uh, w- without any kind of extra effort or or setup does that make sense and i can kind of dive into any any one of these three sets of uh, integrations that are are interesting
0: something i'm actually more cu- i mean that that was a great explanation but something i'm i'm more curious about is the index itself that you have to build and basically the data structures that you have to build the architecture of source graph where it sits is this just like a big index that's sitting in memory on aws somewhere uh do i need to load something into my laptop where where is it and, and uh
1: what's the architecture of the data structure that you're building got it so there are kind of two ways to use source graph right now one is you go to sourcegraph.com and uh you sign up you know using uh GitHub or GitLab or you know you create a an account and then you can search all the code on Sourcegraph.com that covers uh, you know most of the open source world. The other way is you run a Sourcegraph instance yourself, and what that means is you deploy a server uh, the Sourcegraph service onto typically it's like an AWS node or a GCP node or an Azure node, and there's multiple ways of doing that because we have different deployment environments that we target. So you can deploy it as a single Docker container. You can deploy it as a set of Docker containers via Docker Compose, or you can deploy it as a Kubernetes cluster. So there's kind of different deployment models, but they all kind of try to do the same thing, uh, just in different packaging. You know, they, they all kind of involve the same different services that comprise a source graph backend. And to get at your specific question about kind of the index format, there are a variety of different indexes that we build in the back end to support different requests. So for a search, for instance, we, we use an open source uh, library called Zookt um, that was created by developers uh, at Google. It itself was based on, I think, an earlier implementation of code search by, written by Russ Cox and then open sourced, which that implementation was also based off an earlier version of code search that was internal only to, to Google. So there's kind of this succession of open source code search libraries terminating in Zook, which we use to kind of construct this trigram index that we use to, to make code search really fast. So that's one kind of backend index that we use. The other, I think, big index that we use is the ELSIF index. So, you know, earlier I was telling you about the, the language server index format. We kind of accept that data via uploads uh, to the Sourcegraph API And then we convert that Elsif data into this indexed format, and we use a a SQLite backend to do that. And that makes things like looking up definitions and references by their symbol ID or their moniker uh, really quick. And and that's essential to optimizing the request-response cycle of uh, things like go-to-definition request or a find-references request. Does that make sense? I, I feel like uh, <laughs> I'm happy to go into more detail here. I feel like you know this is uh, I'm not doing a great job of explaining it, but th- those are kind of like the two main indexes in our backend.
0: And so, when I'm typing in a search in Sourcegraph, this is going to be federated to multiple indexes.
1: So, when you're typing in a search that that typically exercises the trigram index mainly. It's the the LSF index is used mainly to serve uh, kind of code navigation requests. When you're when you're typing in a search, a couple things happen. So there's kind of like a a, a piece, I'll call it middleware, uh, like search middleware that accepts the you know GraphQL search API request. And then it kind of federates that to multiple search backends. And there's only one kind of search backend that's indexed, and that is the Trigram Index. We use that to, to serve kind of these global search requests. Like when you're when you're trying to search across an entire universe of code, whether that's like all the code inside your you know, big enterprise company or all the open source code in the world, we use that index to make that fast. There are a couple other backends that are tailored to other use cases. So there is an in-memory search uh, backend, which handles uh, search requests that are scoped to a specific repository or a small set of repositories, but at a different version that's not the master or default version uh, of the code. Uh, and that obviously comes in handy when you're trying to explore you know, a, a different branch or, or a particular commit. There's another backend that is specifically tailored to symbol search. So a lot of a major use case of code search is you you don't want just any text result matching a particular query. You want to see only like you know function definitions that match it. You don't want to match stuff in like the comment string or the like string literals or, or things like that. So there's a symbol search backend that also uh, hooks into kind of the semantic understanding part of the source graph, knows what a symbol is, and then searches symbols uh, specifically. And then there's a couple other, you know, more minor search backends, like there's one for kind of diff search, where you're trying to search across like commit messages or, or diffs that get exercised in specific user queries. So there's, there's a really rich set of, I guess, like backends that are all federated into the single search query box that support a variety of different search use cases. Because what we found is, you know, code search is not just a, a single feature. It's, it's actually a multitude of different use cases and features kind of bundled up into a single search box and query language.
0: Is it hard to keep that search performant or does it matter? Because I guess you type in the search query and the work is the work can be done somewhat asynchronously. You can probably do some naive parallelism to keep it performant. Tell me about keeping that search performant over a really big index.
1: Yeah, I mean, <laughs> that's a great question. You know, I, I guess it is a challenge. It, it, it's, a, it's a major challenge, especially when you're trying to search over you know, all, all the code that happens to exist in, in the world and, and make it fast. And it's it's particularly important to make it fast, I think, because I think I as a developer and many other developers, we value speed a lot, right? Like any, any sort of wait time that we experience in the UI, that becomes an opportunity to lose our, our focus or, or fall out of the state of the flow. So we've invested a lot of effort into optimizing the performance of our search and... <laughs> I think this is also kind of the case for other search engines like, you know, Google. There, there's kind of like a couple of key ideas that that, that give you like big gains uh, in terms of performance and, and what performance is possible. And then there's just like a long tail of hacks and specific optimizations that you implement to target specific bottlenecks. And so like as far as like the big ideas in, in the, the the code indexing back that make it fast, you know, a number of them I've kind of already touched upon one is is you know the use of a trigram index to, to make it fast so that that's one key insight turns out there's a lot more you have to do to to actually make that scale in practice like we have a, a sharded backend so you know when you're hitting the uh, trigram index back in a source graph that from the point of the like search middleware it looks like you're just hitting a single service but really that service is, is sharding that request out to uh, or sorry uh it's it's uh, distributing that request to multiple shards of the index, and then collects those results, and then and refers the kind of combined results back to the search middleware, which then combines them with you know all the other responses from the various search backends, and 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 sends it back to the user. So the the index is 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 a big important thing. There's also various ways of making in-memory search fast. So uh, we've spent a lot of time thinking about optimizing regular expression, making regular expression search fast by. Making regular expression search fast for kind of like in-memory data. Uh, so there's a there's a variety of different regular expression what's the word like matchers uh, libraries out there. We've tried a lot of them and and finally settled on one in particular that seems to have the best performance and and that's the one that we use for kind of the in-memory search. And then there's there's just kind of like the long tail of hacks like. Playing around with pagination effects, thinking seriously about like you know whether you need a precise total account total count of results for a particular query versus just a rough estimate. Turns out, rough estimate can be a lot faster if you're search, uh, serving like an end user uh, request where they don't really care about the total number of counts. I would say it's kind of roughly analogous to to Google a search where like you know the kind of the initial. Insight was like PageRank, and that that was a a step function increase. But then there was a long tail of hacks that they implemented to make their search really fast. And now if you were to dive into that search code base, it would be... (laughs) I I feel like it would be a lot of special cases you'd find in the code, just as you'd find in in our code. You've mentioned a term called a trigram index several times. Is that T-R-I-E-gram or T-R-I-gram? T-R-I-E. Well, I I guess the spelling is tri like a tri, tri, like the tri Yeah, try. Sorry, tri data sorry, structure. sorry. It's not trie. It's a tri as in three, Trigram. Okay. And, and right. the basically the idea of the index is you you store you index things based on uh, n grams. In this right. case, you know three three grams. And it turns out that uh, this is a particularly efficient way. Of looking up uh, specific like pieces of text in in code, if that makes sense. So so the, the idea is that like you know for code search, you're often hand you're handed either like a string literal or a regex. In either case, a kind of standard full text index uh, is probably not what you're looking for because the the words that you encounter in source code are very different than the words that you encounter in plain text, right? Like you have fewer like whole words and more of these like, conca- like camel case concatenations or snake case concatenations of of various words. Or it might be like, you know, some long string of text that you want to treat as like a, a string literal, like an error message, right? And if you use kind of a standard uh, plain text uh, indexer, it would find all these like fuzzy matches, which is not what you want. And so one of the insights, and like, honestly, we can't claim to be the discoverer of this insight. I think it really goes back to, well, I, I don't actually know who the original originator, but like where I learned about it was a, a blog post from Russ Cox, where he talks about implementing a trigram index for uh, Google's internal uh, code search. It's, it's all about finding these like sequences of three uh, characters that are pretty, and it turns out those are pretty distinct and those become kind of a fingerprint for a particular piece of code that you're looking for. And so you end up building an index uh, index of these like trigrams. And then searching for those, and, and that gives you a set of search results that works really well for both full text and uh, regular expression code searches.
0: So it's three characters or three words? I believe it's three characters. Okay. And so that is just one of the indexes, the, the trigram index, and then there's there's other indexes you mentioned, like the the... What were the other indexes?
1: <laughs> yeah, sorry. I I feel like I'm not doing a, a great job of explaining all this, but the the trigram index is the primary index for code search. So basically, it's the it's the only index that we hit for for code searches. And then the other index I mentioned was the Elsif index, and that's for serving code navigation requests. So when you when you click into a search result and you're trying to go to a definition or, or find the references of a particular symbol, then we would hit the Elsif index.
0: Got it. And so the Elsie index, this is the language server index format. Tell me exactly, me- right? Okay. So tell me more about how these two search methods compare. You have the the language server index format, and then you have the basic trigram search. How do these two compare?
1: They are extremely different. So the the trigram index is is optimized for serving requests of the form like I type in a search query. It's like a particular pattern that I'm trying to find in the code and now go find me all instances of, of that pattern across the entire code base. Whereas the if index, the request that it's supporting is, I have my cursor over a particular symbol. You know, it's a, it's a function name, for instance. And now I want you to find me the single definition where that symbol is defined, or I want you to find me all the different places in which that symbol is referenced in code. So, you know, the the former, the trigram index starts with a, like, user query, and it's fundamentally about, like, finding a token of of text or tokens of text that match the pattern that you're looking for. And then the else index is all about, uh, I'm hovering, I have my cursor over a particular point in a code file, and now find me the forward and backward references of that vertex in the graph of uh, references and dependencies in source code. Does that make sense? Yeah, it, it
0: does. And so you build both of these indexes for for every, every company that uses source graph? Correct. Okay. And have you noticed, are there particular types of code bases that work, work better for LSIF and particular ones that work more for the search-based uh, trigram format?
1: So I would say that the challenge here is not actually in the building of the indexes. So the, I would say the, I'll I'll treat the two different indexes separately because they, they behave very differently. The trigram index is not really, there's there's nothing like language specific about that index. It's it's kind of like a a text-based index so that it doesn't, it doesn't really vary by language. Uh, Now there are kind of, you know, certain languages that, are, you know, more verbose than others and maybe that has some some kind of like second order effect on the overall accuracy or, you know, the number of results that you have to sift through, but by and large we don't really think about language specificity when it comes to the trigram index. The elsaiv index is interesting because the index format itself is language agnostic, but the way that you generate the index data is highly, highly specific to a particular language and a particular build system. So, yeah, that, that's kind of the difference. And then for for the Elsif index, you know, when we when we're, you know, in full transparency, like our, our support for languages using the Elsif index, it's not 100% across the board. We actually fall back on the kind of basic code intelligence uh, method uh, for a lot of languages. And a major challenge for us in kind of the next couple of months or so is building out support for many more languages using LSIF. And the, what that entails is is kind of writing or adapting existing indexers, ELSIF indexers, to all the different build systems that we want to support in a particular language ecosystem, and then documenting them such that it's easy for users and customers to set that up in their build system or CI pipeline. And we've also kind of invested in automating this whole process. So there's, there's certain languages, like Go, for instance, where for, uh, I'd say, like 90, maybe 95% of projects, we can uh, we don't actually require you to do any manual setup in, in your CI service. We can kind of infer all the parameters we need to go and construct that index uh, ourselves.
0: So, else if you're saying that whenever somebody ships new code, it needs to be, the index needs to be updated, right? Correct. What does that update look like?
1: Yeah, that's a great question. So in the naive case, it is, you re-index the entire repository. And that is kind of still the case for a lot of the code that we index. But lately, we've also invested in kind of incremental indexing, which is, you know, you examine the diff of the files that changed since the last time you indexed. Determine what files need to be recompiled, and then you just extract the index information from those files and then merge it with the index information you had from the last run of the indexer. And this is obviously can be quite a lot faster, especially for large code bases, but it is also more difficult from a technical standpoint because you have to figure out how to merge those indexes correctly. (laughs)
0: And how does this fit into a CI CD workflow?
1: Yeah, so the idea is build systems and build configurations are highly idiosyncratic and oftentimes highly specific to a particular organization or even a particular repository. And so instead of trying to build a generic backend that can go and understand, you know all the different you know exponentially variable build configurations there are which you know i, I would argue is uh, an intractable problem what we do is we say okay you as the owner or maintainer of this code base you understand the ins and outs of uh, your build system better than we do and and probably better than anyone else in the world by a wide margin and so what we're going to do is instead of trying to like magically infer what this configuration is for you, we're going to say, okay, here's this tool. We'll give you a well-documented tool with various configuration points and explain how this hooks into a build system. But then we're going to rely on you to actually you know, add a step in your build pipeline and pass the proper parameters to this tool to generate the ELSIF data. Does that make sense?
0: Yeah, yeah, definitely. And the thing I wonder is... What have you seen around usage of Sourcegraph that has surprised you? How have people who, that are using Sourcegraph
1: surprised you with their usage? I think one of the surprising things about Sourcegraph usage is just the multitude of ways in which people uh, find Sourcegraph useful. So, you know, when we originally wrote Sourcegraph, the, the use case that I kind of had in mind was this use case of you know exploring new libraries and building a. A mental model of uh you know how those libraries function how to call their apis and, and things like that it turns out that there's actually like <laughs> a lot more uh use cases for search and code beyond just that 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 actually overwhelm that in in terms of frequency so you know one particular case was the case that i mentioned earlier which is you know investing investigating production outages uh we've heard from customers that like hey source graph Cut down the time it took to resolve a production issue from like hours to essentially minutes. And that, you know, essentially allowed us to bring our e-commerce website back online and, and continue serving, you know, payments requests. And, and that was uh, certainly like surprising because I had, I had not anticipated that, that kind of use case. There are other features that we built in response to customer use cases uh, that have been surprising. So like that save searches functionality that I mentioned uh, briefly earlier was uh, kind of built in response to a customer need that we saw where people were kind of saving queries in source graph and using them to track like anti-patterns that might get added to the code. So instead of like, okay, let me start out with a query that I want to find at a given point in time, it's more like you know run this query on a recurring basis in the background and alert me when uh, when the result set changes. I don't know, there's there's kind of like a, a lot of things. I guess a, another thing is, so when we, we first started Sourcegraph, we, we kind of focused it primarily on like a search and discovery use case. But as we talked to more and more of our customers, we found that um, actually, there's a lot of companies out there that have this problem of I want to make some simple change to a library that is shared across many services or many parts of code in my code base. And if my code base is sufficiently large, making this simple change actually becomes extremely non-trivial. Like if if I want to, you know, modify uh, the the public interface of a function that's dependent on by, you know, a dozen or so additional services, I not only have to make a pull request against that specific library repository, I have to go and open a PR uh, against, you know, a dozen or so different repositories, and I have to interact with a dozen or so different teams potentially. And so we're were seeing people use Sourcegraph for this kind of like large-scale find-and-replace Procedure and they're using source graph mainly for the kind of like find part of that. And then they would have some like hacky, you know, shell script or, you know, homegrown tool to go and actually initiate that set of changes uh, across many different repositories and monitor the progress and uh, kind of shepherd that change through. And uh, in many cases, uh, what was very surprising to me is that like inside larger companies, this can be a process that takes like months or even in one case, like over a year. And that's, it, it just seems crazy to me. Like yeah, that's that's one of the things that like, like I, I guess like it's one of those things when people talk about like code base ossification, like this kind of like, you know, as your code base grows in complexity it becomes harder and harder to change, change it and improve it significantly. I think this like feeds right into that. And so we kind of took that and said like, okay, They're already using Sourcegraph for kind of the find part of this find and replace procedure. How can we better support the replace part of it? And that actually led to a major new feature that we're now launching called Sourcegraph campaigns, which is all about first expressing a pattern that you'd like to find in the source code and then specifying a replacement pattern to substitute that old pattern with with a, a new replacement and then executing this in kind of a formal, easy to use and standard kind of way across your entire code base.
0: Okay. Well, I think that sets us up for a bit of a conversation about the future. So SourceCraft mm-hmm. has a pretty detailed master plan. You have goals for you know, one year, three years, five years, 10 years, 30 years into the future. Yeah. Tell me about the master plan. What's the arc of the future of SourceCraft?
1: Yeah. So the master plan, and for, for those listening, you, you could just Google Sourcegraph master plan that kind of lays out our you know long-term vision for the company. So I think there's kind of two ends to the master plan. There's kind of the near term, and then there's the the long term. And then a lot of the plan is just talking about how we make those two meet in the middle. And so I would say in kind of like the, the near to medium term, in you know, the next couple of years, we are really focused on producing a tool that helps people kind of understand and grok the universe of code that's relevant to them. And I think increasingly for most developers, that universe that's relevant to them is, is becoming like the universe of all code in the world. Because, uh, you know, if, if you're not accessing and leveraging the universe of open source code, you, you're you liable to fall behind in kind of the, the software world. And so we're investing in code search, making it scale and uh, making it super fast across, you know, an even... Uh, broader range of repositories, supporting kind of new pattern matching syntaxes beyond regex, because uh, regex is I think uh, a lot of developers have a love-hate relationship with regex, uh, and there's actually a new pattern uh, matching syntax that was uh, created by a teammate of ours in his PhD thesis that uh, we think is is awesome. And uh, kind of also investing in like the uh, the UI of code search and making it accessible to both beginners and uh, power users of Sourcegraph. Also, the code navigation part, supporting precise code navigation, code intelligence across all the different uh, languages in the world expanding the extension API so that we integrate more and more third-party tools into Sourcegraph, we think that could become a potentially fantastic channel for new developer tools to get discovered. In large part because the people who use Sourcegraph typically use it organization-wide, and like every developer uses it every single day. So like that's the level of engagement uh, and value that we're seeing. And so we we want to use that to, to make it uh, an avenue of discovery for like other great tools that you can use. And then also building out, you know, new features that are kind of adjacent to what we currently do, like like campaigns. So it's all around this task of like uh, making sense, understanding, and kind of managing the complexity inside large corpuses of code and large universes of code. In kind of the longer term, you know, our North Star uh, has always really been to make it so that everyone in the world uh, has the opportunity to code and not just to code, but also to make like a living off of code. To so to like code as part of their job, or, or code as uh, produce a code or software product that other people use, uh, get value from, and like ultimately pay for. And the way we're going about that is we're first starting with a tool that understands the universe of code and makes that accessible to every professional software engineer. And then we want to slowly kind of work our way down. Like this, this summer, we actually have an intern who's working on standing up source graph for various universities and focusing on a kind of a classroom use case. And ultimately, we also want to make it accessible for people in like kind of non-software engineering roles to also understand the code. Because guess what? Code is becoming kind of the an essential part of Every company and and, uh, almost every organization inside a company, like, you know, a a salesperson or a person on the marketing team, uh, there might be some piece of automation that they want to modify or understand that's relevant to their jobs. And right now, I think code is by and large a black box to, to people, even people with like a, a background in software engineering. Like unless you have the you know technical chops and familiarity to like set up a local development environment for your code base, it's a black box to you. And so we we would like to kind of break that boundary and bridge the gap so that you know anyone out there whose job is kind of affected or adjacent to code which i think increasingly is becoming you know more and more people can kind of dive into code and, and understand it and make a valuable update or change to it
0: well that's a great future and i appreciate you sharing that with us it's been great talking to you beyond and i am excited about source graph in the present and in the future
1: awesome thanks so much for having me on the show jeff